Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We caught up earlier today with Mark Jarvis. He's the CEO of Giga Metals, our nickel explorer developer with assets in Canada. Uh, we talked through the results of their PEA um, activity in the market uh, and their plans for this year in terms of how they move a project like this forward. Plus, um, I thought quite interestingly, talking about uh, HPAL versus low-grade bulk projects like this one, what are the true economics? Lots of discussion in the marketplace about that. So if you want our thoughts and opinions on any of those topics, discussion generally, the company, you can find that at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club. We can also find detailed company reports and analysis, which you might find interesting. Uh, there are summaries of other interviews that we've done just to save you some time, introduce you some, to you some new companies. Uh, there are uh, training videos to help you with your diligence process. There's commentary from experts from around the world on a variety of commodities, weekly shows, um, also different companies and ideas, plus a thriving community of investors sharing their thoughts and ideas with each other in a nice friendly environment, sounds nice, without uh, trolling or abuse. So if that does attract you, do go and look at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club. Mark, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing very good, Matthew. How are you doing? Yeah, well, you look well. It's been a long time, though. It has been a long time. Well, I haven't traveled in more than a year. Yeah. So I would love, I mean, London is my favorite large city in the world. I would love to come there, but what can you do? Avoid at all costs at the moment. We, we, we've yes. got a few things to sort out at this end. Um, yes. Are you getting used to these Zoom meetings that you've got to do? That's become de rigueur. I'm afraid I am, yes. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Comfortable. But it's actually nice. I don't like, you know, I've never liked going to the airport, waiting in line, going through security, staying in hotels, eating restaurant food, even good restaurant food gets a bit old after a while. So this is kind of okay, actually. The new norm. The new norm. Well, look, um, it's been so long. Um, thank you very much for um, you know coming on and, and telling us, reminding us of the story. Um, sure. I'm going to ask if you, if I may, just do that one minute overview of the company, and then I'll get in some okay. questions if I may after that. Okay. Well, uh, Giga Metals, our core project is the Turnigan project in uh, north central British Columbia. It is a very large. Uh, open pitable, low grade sulfide nickel and cobalt resource uh, that we're doing metallurgy and engineering on uh, and you know attempting to develop uh, hopefully all the way to shovel ready um, you know at some point. Um, it is uh, well we've recently uh, updated our 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 PEA uh, which confirms that it is what it's always been. It's a very large deposit that's marginal uh, at, uh, has marginal economics at current nickel prices. Uh, you know, nickel prices have been creeping up, so that may change. But uh, the investment thesis has always been uh, these type of very large marginal deposits uh, from an investment perspective are where the leverage is. I mean, if, if the commodity goes up significantly, the value of a deposit like this absolutely balloons. It's it's crazy optionality, and 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 so that's the same as it's always been. Uh, the PEA model uh, that uh, we'll be producing 
uh, an average life of mine of 33,000 tons per year of nickel in an 18% concentrate, 1% cobalt uh, for a mine life of 37 years. Uh, the deposit's open. Um, you know, we have come nowhere near drilling it off. Uh, we've, we've probably drilled 20 to 25% of what we think is, you know, prospective uh, geology. But, you know, 37 years of mine life at 33,000 tons a year is plenty to start with. Um, the capex in the current model is about 1.4 billion for the first phase. So we would build this in stages. Um, and then we would double up our production in about year five or six. Uh, so the total capex is just under $2 billion. Um, this actually compares quite well to HPAL uh, uh, projects of a similar size, say 35,000 tons a year, uh, which generally have a capex of about $3 billion. And they can't be built in stages, so you've got more money at risk right up front. Okay, um, brilliant. So our economics are marginal at today's prices, but so are the HPAL deposits. In fact, we've done um, analysis. Uh, our economics are slightly better than HPL economics. Okay, well, well let's come uh, back. Let's come back to that because I do want to have a conversation okay, about HPL yeah. versus low-grade bulk because it's being talked about in the marketplace at the moment. I saw your press release of a few months ago, you know, addressing that. So that that's fantastic. But the PA, I just want to say, it was kind of refreshingly. Honest. There was no spin. There was no promote. And I think you've long talked the language of this is a nine ten dollar project. You know, and the nickel prices have, I mean, done it done exceedingly well in two thousand and twenty. This yes. EV thematic seems to be catching on. I think I think it might work. Um, so mm -hmm. <laughs> it, that was intriguing to me because you know we speak to a lot of people and people try and put out you know, these very positive versions of PEAs or studies scoping studies, and they're just unrealistic. You, you Okay, it's low single-digit IRR, and, and, and at today's rates, it's going to be a negative NPV. But yes. you know you knew that, and you've always said that. So um, did you get any sort of kickback from the market when you put that out? Not really. No, it was just sort of, uh, just sort of level, you know, the usual sort of ups and downs, and it didn't have a big reaction one way or the other. Um, uh, from my perspective, what was more interesting is the reaction of the strategic market or the market of strategic investors. The, you know, I mean, we're talking to automobile companies, battery companies, trading companies, and so forth. And, you know, it's interesting because they're mostly looking at, do I believe these CapEx numbers? Do I believe the operating cost numbers? And, you know, we've, bent over backwards to be credible uh, in both those departments. Um, and then, of course, they're going to use their own price deck. And, you know, they can plug that into, uh, you know, a financial model of our deposit and compare it to other, you know, competing large deposits. So, so but why, why, that, why that timing? Why, why did you decide, okay, October, November, we're going to put out the PEA? There was no rush into the market, was there? I mean, were you being pushed by your shareholders to make some kind of announcement given it's been a quiet few years? Yeah, simply that our old PEA was in December of 2011. 
and we did need to update it. I mean, um, you know, in terms of having credibility and talking to potential strategic partners, um, you know, we needed to have recent uh, metallurgy and engineering. And, um, you know, and, and, and that's part of, you know, even though there's no push by the market, uh, we want to continue to de-risk this project and continue to advance the engineering, you know, next to pre-fees and uh, ultimately to full feasibility. Because what we think is going to happen is as this electric vehicle revolution progresses, uh, it's going to become apparent that nickel is the bottleneck material. It's not lithium. It's not cobalt. Uh, it's not copper. It's nickel. Where suddenly it's, <laughs> you know, people, <sighs> the end users all want a long-term fixed price contract. The battery makers would love a long-term fixed price contract. And nobody that's a producer is going to give that to them unless they were willing to offer a remarkably high fixed price. So, you know, all of the end users are starting to get worried that where am I going to have a long-term supply of nickel? It's, 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 it's really, I think, just starting to dawn on a lot of them. The Chinese are way ahead of the game. Um, and, you know, it's their goal to dominate, and they already are dominating, uh, the battery market and the electric vehicle market. Um, and what they have realized is that the only way that you're going to get a long-term long supply of nickel at a given price is to own a mine or own a piece of a mine. And then your long-term cost is the cost of production. And so, you know, I get asked all the time, well, if the economics of HPAL are so bad, why are they getting built? Just because, you know, if you look at it from a Chinese perspective, they're far more interested in security of supply and long-term supply than they are in the near-term, you know, uh, IRR. Um, plus, they've got access to capital for almost nothing. So they're, you know, so, so, so even, for example, Ramu, which is considered one of the most successful um, uh, HPL projects in the last 25 years. It's been operating now for nine or 10 years. It still hasn't paid back its CapEx. So by, you know, so in Western terms, that's not enticing financials. Um, but for Chinese terms, they're just going, well, you know, I've got, I've got the supply of nickel. I know what my cost is. And, you know, China incorporated will make its money further up the value chain in the batteries. And well, the well, absolutely. So, so let's talk about that because I did, like I said, I do want to talk about HPAL um, and, you know, low-grade bulk projects and the way that OEMs, the automotive manufacturers, are influencing the way that things are done because it's not, not just a, a question of cost, okay, which is clearly very important in business, um, but mm -hmm. there's also in this green revolution of ours that we're, we're going through, you know, ethical investing, green investing. Um, HPAL does have a track record in Indonesia, you know, Philippines, China of perhaps not being the greenest or cleanest uh, way to 
access your nickel. And if I, if I look back to conversations of Elon Musk of last year, give me cheap, efficient, clean nickel, then right. that's probably, HPL is not necessarily the, the, the go-to solution for that. So where, how, would you, how would you put yourself up against HPL? What, what, what are the selling points for you in terms of a sulfide producer? Okay, well, um, you know, it depends where the HPL is located. So, for example, if you're talking about HPL located in Australia, that's generally pretty good. You know, really any first world jurisdiction is pretty good because you, you actually have environmental regulations. So Canada, Australia, you know, European producers, Finland, you know, they're going to be pretty good. Um, if you're in uh, the Coral Triangle, um, which, uh, you know, a lot of the proposed HPL and existing HPL is, what they do is, you know, for, for one thing, a lot of the power is supplied by coal. Uh, you're also uh, mowing down rare tropical rainforests because these are strip mines. They're not open pit mines. They might be 10 to 20 meters thick and go on for mile after mile after mile. And when I say that they're mowing down rare tropical rainforests, they're rare because it's vegetation that has adapted to high amounts of nickel in the soil, which most plants don't like that. So you've got vegetation adapted to high nickel. And in fact, you can find these deposits by flying around and looking for certain types of vegetation. So they go in, they mow down, you know, and this isn't just for HPL, this is also for, uh, you know, the nickel pig iron, which has become this huge source of steel. So not just batteries, but, but steel. If you start thinking about if you're building your cars out of steel, well, where does that steel come from? And where does, the, where does the nickel for the stainless steel come from? Well, they're also mowing down these rare tropical rainforests. And in the case of HPL, um, it's very difficult to deal with the tailings. Uh, you're in an area with a very high seismic risk. You're in an area with enormous rainfall. And so putting the tailings you know, behind uh, typical tailings down is very risky, um, both because of the rainfall and the high degree of seismic activity in that area. Uh, so the solution quite often taken is to dump the tailings into the ocean, deep sea tailings disposal. Um, so, you know, when I hear uh, Elon Musk talking about, you know, clean and environmentally friendly sourcing of nickel, and then I hear that he's talking to the Indonesians about this, you know, this is the modern times. This is the age of the internet. It's not gonna take long for that bail to get ripped aside. Um, I don't think you can talk about ethical sourcing of nickel and HPL and the coral triangle in the same breath. Yeah, and I think I think that's right. I think I'm not sure where that Indonesian story came from because I think you know, first of all, Fight Club is you don't know, talk about Fight Club, and I expect Elon Musk sure. follows the same rules, which is you know we don't talk about our deals. Um, so, so but there is the so so that's the, that's the kind of green component, right? So it's typically. In the right countries, are much cleaner to go for nickel and sulfide rather than, I guess, the H-power component, which is more associated with laterite, right? 
There's an argument right. there. Not right. always. There's one other uh, but... element to it. Mm -hmm. There's other. There, there's one other element to it, and that's carbon intensity. So, uh, in our model, um, you know, using uh, BC Hydro, using you know electricity from the BC grid, which is largely you know hydro dams, um, uh, we have uh, scope one and two emissions of about uh, 2.24 tons of CO2 equivalent per ton of nickel produced as compared to the average in the industry for scope one and two is north of 25 tons per ton of nickel produced. So, you know, and we're looking for ways to get that number lower. Uh, for example, if we used an electric fleet, which doesn't exist yet, but you know, the type of equipment, the size we're talking about doesn't exist yet, but we think the market is moving that. So if we could use an electric fleet, we would, and that would reduce our, our, our CO2 uh, you know, emissions considerably. But also, our silicate tailings will absorb CO2 from the atmosphere. And we've been funding research at the University of British Columbia to help measure that. And in fact, we've got, uh, we've got an experiment ongoing right now with Dr. Greg Dippel at uh, UBC to measure how much our particular tailings will absorb uh, uh, from the atmosphere. And this is really interesting. Our goal is to be carbon neutral. No guarantee that we get there, but it is possible, we think, to get there. So, you know, it could be quite a nice story where, you know, we're not mowing down tropical rainforests, you know, we're, we're managing our tailings responsibly. And if we could get carbon neutral, or just even very, very low carbon. I mean, that's a pretty good story, and we're in Canada. Uh, so all of the other sort of ESG elements that, that, that come into play, play very well in Canada. Canada's got a very strict environmental regulation. Uh, uh, yeah, abs absolutely, as it should. Um, so the, they're sequestering the CO2 to attempt, hopefully, to get, we get someone near zero carbon state. Okay, I get that. Should we talk about capital intensity? Because you've talked about some of the ways that you can lower um, your car, your, potentially the, the carbon, uh, so the CO2 emissions side of things. But how do you go about lowering costs going forward? Do, like, for instance, does this electric, vehicle, electric fleet of yours or potential autonomous fleets of yours uh, help mm -hmm. in that? Because you know, you're talking about a kind of multi-cycle size asset, 37 years on phase one, right? Phase one. <laughs> So it's a big, you know, well, long... no, 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 it's 37 years in terms of what we've got drilled off at the moment. That's the 25%. Got it. Yes, exactly. So, so no, there's no guarantee that we keep drilling, we find more ore, but, but, you know, I'm just saying that the deposit is open. Okay. I got you. Okay. So as it stands, 37 years, if you drill off, you may find some more, you may not. Okay. Got it. Under, understood. So, yeah, we may extend it beyond 37 years. That's what I'm saying. So phase one, mm -hmm. we think of phase one as five or six years, and then we double our production. Got it. Some more capex. Thanks for, thanks for elaborating. Yeah, Beautiful. Yeah. So what are the things you look at? You've done a PEA plus or minus 30% in terms of the economics, but you already said, you, and you've long said, it's this is a nine ten dollar project, which is fine, because that seems to be where you know, things are moving, supply, demand. Grassroots would suggest that you're you're going to be heading definitely heading the price will be heading that way so that's all good. What, what are the things that you look at for the pre feasibility study? But how do you, how do you start investigating 
where you can be saving costs because the, the market's the market, the price will be the price, but what can you do? What, what can you control? Well, the pre-feasibility is more about reducing risk. I mean, we've got opportunities to reduce costs um, and we will have to investigate those opportunities uh, uh, in the pre-feasibility. You know, the biggest single one has already happened actually. Um, when we model uh, 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 extending the BC hydropower grid into our site, uh, one of the costs that we modeled into our PEA is call it a hookup cost. Uh, BC Hydro uh, invested in extending the power line up Highway 37 in order to help uh, economic development in the north of BC. Uh, but any mines that hook into the power line, uh, depending on how much power they use, would 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 have to help uh, defray their capex in, in uh, building the line up to Highway 37. So not only the capital cost of extending the line to our site, but also there was a hookup cost. Uh, that's recently, like very recently, been reversed, where the government has said, well, we no longer will require you to do that. So right there, that's about $170 million US less. That's significant. And then there's other things that we're chasing. Um, you know, it's a bit here and a bit there, but that's that's a significant that's a significant one. Can you share infrastructure um, costs with any other um, miners up there? I mean, who, who else is operating up there? Well, it's possible, but it's it's you know that's hard to say. Uh, the closest mine to us is, uh, or, or the closest possible mine to us uh, uh, deposit is Cucho uh, Creek, and Cucho Copper is developing that. But it's a different type of mine. It's uh, you know it's smaller, higher grade. It's a BMS deposit, copper, primarily copper deposit, and uh, so we'll be probably sharing the, you know, the cost to upgrade the road, um, but that's not that big of a cost uh, compared to bringing in the power line. Okay, you've had a few new, new additions to the team since we spoke. I'm most obviously Martin Vidra, and you've also got Lyle Tr Tr Triton? Lyle Triton. Triton, Triton, um, you pronounced that yes. right. So now he's, he's particularly interesting. 25 years at Sheraton. Well, 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 Lyle's, Lyle's just amazing. I mean, uh, you know, and, and, and Martin gets full credit for this. He, he helped to bring Lyle in. Lyle worked at uh, Sheraton uh, with Martin. Uh, Lyle was there for 25 years. He was hired directly out of university. And Martin uh, was telling me about him. He says he's the most talented engineer he has ever worked with. And now that I've worked with Lyle for almost a year, I agree. I mean, I, this, this guy is brilliant. And he can communicate. Um, not all engineers can, as you know. So, um, but but in his experience working for Sherrod, uh, he did due diligence into, I would say, most large undeveloped uh, nickel deposits in the world, uh, most of which are potential HPAL deposits. And he is an HPAL expert. Um, so, you know, with him, we were able to do a meaningful economic comparison between our project and uh, sort of Greenfield's HPAL projects that are out there. And uh, that was a very interesting exercise. He did, huh. well, okay, so, so I asked him to put together a press release um, to compare us to HPAL projects, you know, Greenfield's HPAL projects that are out there. And he came up with about 20 pages of dense engineer speak 
I said, okay, well, now you're doing an internal study. So carry on with that. Um, I'll write the press release and I'll try and pick out the most important parts of it. Um, you know, with, of course, his review. So that I wanted to make sure that everything we said was accurate. Um, it couldn't be as obviously as detailed as he wanted to get. So behind that press release is about 25 pages of very dense uh, analysis that Lyle put together for us. And, you know, you know, the bottom line is, is that uh, compared to HPAL projects, A, you know, of a similar size, we never have as much capital as this. 35,000 tons a year for an HPAL project, that's a $3 billion capex or more. Um, and we put 1.4 billion at risk up front. We produce for a few years and then we spend another a little over half a billion dollars. All in, we're less than $2 billion. But because this project is suitable for developing in phases like that, we can do that. We've never got more than $1.4 billion at risk. Now, that's still a large number. But if you compare it to $3 billion, it starts to look a little more manageable. Um, and, you know, our economics are, you know, beyond that initial spend, our economics are similar to HPL. So only in the most optimistic HPL scenarios will their economics exceed ours at around year 15 to 20, because they've got more cobalt than we do. And that, that helps the economics. But do, do you, so do you think in the market, because some of the commentators in the market talking about the low-grade bulk, They've been around the block as fund managers, their old CEO, you know, and they're commenting and saying, you know, these things just don't work. I mean, does that surprise you? You know, what's interesting about sort of large, low-grade sulfide nickel deposits, um, they've got a reputation for difficult metallurgy. And in many cases, now I'm going to talk some geological talk here, mm -hmm. and I'm not a geologist, so, you know, if I get in trouble, you know, It'll be fine. Okay, so so if you take a deposit like ours and you expose it, it's you know an ultramafic intrusive, and you expose it at surface and rain on it for a couple of hundred million years, it breaks down and becomes a laterite deposit. Even if you don't, you know, expose it at surface and rain on it, um, it'll gradually transform into a smaller deposit. Like it'll gradually collapse. It'll it'll uh, produce alteration minerals such as kelp and so forth and clays, and so gradually the deposit will shrink, get higher grade, but it'll have more alteration minerals, and those alteration minerals spell trouble in terms of metallurgy. Our deposit is 180 million years old, which is a baby uh, compared to the other large, low-grade sulfide, uh, you know, open pitable nickel deposits, they're all more than, our peers are all more than a billion years old. And so, for example, if you compare us to DuMont, uh, which has, uh, you know, a mixture of sulfide and awareulite, awareulite is a nickel-iron alloy. It's sort of like stainless steel sitting in the rock. Um, but also other alteration, uh, um, materials, if you look at their flow sheet, 
There's magnetic separation, for one thing, to get rid of the awareness, right? There's also desliming circuits to try and get rid of some of the clay and the other alteration minerals. So, you know, it's not, you know, our flow sheet is you crush it, you grind it, frost flotation, you know, several steps of frost flotation, but that's it. No desliming required. It hasn't been around long enough to get all the alteration minerals. So, you know, of our peers, we are the lowest average grade, but we've got the easiest metallurgy. And so we get higher recoveries than our peers and, and our process flow sheet is simpler. Right. Okay. So, and more predictable. Which is well, there important. you go. Right. Okay. So you, anything works at the right price, but sure. metallurgy is metallurgy. If it doesn't work, it gets yeah. very, very expensive, if, if at all practical. Right. Yes. Okay, cool. So, um, so Lyle, Lyle's in here. Lyle's Triton, 25 years at Sherratt. He's probably seen one or two projects, I suspect. What's he make of yes. yours? Well, he's very bullish on our project. I mean, he uh, he's quite excited to be working with us. And, you know, you know, you know, part of what gives me some confidence is, you know, Martin Weidberg, who's been around the block himself, um, when he's, what, what sold him on us was, when he saw the concentrate that we can make, you know, uh, I mean, we're ranging from sort of 15% to 23%, you know, you know, in our concentrate, what we've modeled is 18% nickel. And that's actually consistent from what we did in 2011. Um, and it's a very clean concentrate. When Martin saw this product, this, this product, that's what got him bullish on the project. Yes, we got to move a lot of rock. Um, you know, and there are costs associated with that, but all of that's modeled into the engineering report. Um, but if you've got a nice clean concentrate with very little in the way of deleterious elements, uh, you know, in, in fact, some of them are undetectable, um, it gives you a lot of options for further processing downstream. What we've modeled in, in, in the PEA is that we take our concentrate and we sell it to a traditional smelter and they do the smelting and refining. And the reason we did that is that's the market that exists. And you can get a lot of information about that. And from an engineer's point of view, you're not going to model a market that doesn't exist yet. Looking forward, we think it'll be quite a different market. Um, if you want cathode materials for batteries, it really doesn't make sense to take our concentrate, smelt it, refine it to briquettes or metal or whatever. And then if you want the sulfate, you've got to now process it backwards. You've got to grind it up, hit it with acid and, and, and create sulfate. So we think it'll make a lot more sense to take our concentrate and just do a simple pressure oxidation circuit. And you can make sulfate or whatever the precursor material is that will be desired at that time. It just gives you a lot of flexibility. Um, you know, and there's there's refineries capable of doing that right now. Um, you know, Long Harbor uh, in uh, Labrador in uh, Newfoundland. And, um, you know, there are other refineries around the world that are capable of doing it or capable of doing it with some adjustments. Um, you know, even Fort Saskatchewan, which is Sherrits, uh, it started off um, uh, processing um, 
concentrate and it could be refitted so that you can process concentrate there. Anyways, it's, it's, that's, that's what drew Martin to us. And that's what drew Lyle to us is, is the quality of our concentrate and the sheer size and scale of the deposit. Right. I mean, you got one Lyle in and another Lyle out. I think Lyle Davis stepped down as well. Yes, he did. Well, no, he's still on the board. He's still on the board. He stepped down. Stepped down as chairman. Yeah. Okay. And you've introduced yeah. Anthony Maluski, I think, obviously works with M- M- Martin um, as yes. well on, on a few things, um, advisor at Conic, et cetera, um, and Cobalt 27 before that. I'm going to talk to you about um, your share price. It's sort of sure. spent most of last year around 30, 40 cents. It's up around 74. Yeah. It's not bad. Not too shabby. Okay. Yeah. Not bad at all. I'll take that. Um, but you had a bit of a peak, a bit, a bit, of, a, a bit of a peak back in August, September. Yeah. And September, I think yeah. the, I just want to talk to you about the optics around that. I want to sort of understand it because there's a sure. lot of information in the marketplace. Okay. Sure, let's, um, chat. let's let's chat. Okay, so yeah. what happened? There? What what's what is the official version of what happened there? Well, you know, I've never seen anything like it in my entire career. Mm. I've never experienced anything like it. Certainly. Okay, where it, where it started was with Martin Biden, who is quite a high profile mining executive. Um, He's a former chair of the Nickel Institute uh, based in London. Uh, he was one of the founding directors of the LME Cobalt Committee. Um, and you know, reporters that cover the metal space, particularly in London, uh, they'll phone Martin all the time for a quote on nickel, what's happening with the nickel market, what's happening with the cobalt market. And so last time he was in London, which is more than a year ago now, I think it was there for an LME Cobalt Committee meeting or something. I, you know, but but he'll sit down with the journalists, you know, and have a beer with them. And uh, every time he does, he says, you know, you should write a story about Giga. You know, we aim to be a carbon neutral mine. We're we're you know we we can sequester CO two from the atmosphere. This is a really interesting story. You ought to write it up. And so last time he was in London, you know, a little more than a year ago, uh, you know, he talked about it to a couple of different Bloomberg journalists, fast markets guy, and uh, this woman from Reuters. And the woman from Reuters took him up on it and started digging into the Giga story and took it in a completely different direction. <laughs> okay. Um, and so what she eventually came up with was a story with a headline uh, saying that we were in talks with Tesla. And she phoned up Martin and asked him for a comment. Uh, Martin commented that we don't discuss discussions that we're having with anybody. Um, but she had had it confirmed from three different people who, by the way, I still don't know who they are, that, that, that said what, that we were in discussions with Tesla. We immediately put out a press release saying that there was no material announcements forthcoming. Because, you know, the truth of it, Matthew, is that we were in discussion with everybody, and we still are. We're talking to everybody. Um, But is that material? Well, okay, if the discussions are to the point of offer, counter-offer, then yes, it's material. 
But if the discussions are at the point of due diligence, it's not really material. We're, you know, there's lots of people doing due diligence with us. There's, there's, there's lots of people with, you know, confidentiality agreements and so forth. Most discussions lead to nothing. And so it's not material. Uh, certainly we weren't in any discussions that were on the point of an announcement. And so we put out a press release saying that, but the speculators out there didn't care. They ran with this story and my God, it was obvious, uh, that, you know, this, the stock was running. We ran as high as $2 and 40 cents a share. We were trading some days, 18 to 20 million shares a day, and they were small orders. This was, this was a retail market, uh, but it was an enormous retail market. And, you know, there was rumors out there that, that, that Giga was going to announce it or, or that Tesla was going to announce a takeover for Giga on battery day. Well, that wasn't going to happen. And, uh, you know, and, and again, we had put out a press release saying there is nothing material forthcoming. I even saw comments saying, well, haha, they would say that. Yeah, no, so, I, I, I think, Mike, I mean, it's, I see that all the time. Okay. Look, I, I think a sure. journalist writing a crazy headline just so she, you know, she can get paid for, you know, publishing something. That's one thing. And I think people have commented that perhaps she uses the three anonymous source quote just one too many times. Um, I don't, I don't sure. have a problem with that because that's, I guess, the way the market goes. And I also don't really have a problem with the fact that, Retail may try and interpret and speculate what may be, and I and I know that people just make stuff up to suit a narrative. Right. And I think we've seen that with GameStop recently, in terms of the sure. you know, with the whole Reddit thing. So I don't have a problem with any of that. The bit where I right. think the optics change and become very problematic is when the chairman and president take the opportunity to kind of cash in on it, something they know is completely made up well okay um so for starters i elected not to sell any i know that personally why not okay T so, tell me why mark so, so, tell me why because i so saw that i was going to ask you you didn't sell you well, did not sell why you, you know you know let me let, let me say this was it ever tempting I mean, with, with my position, depending on the price I got, I was looking at 10 to $14 million. That's real money. Um, but, you know, when I sign on uh, with a public company, and I've been with this one since 2004, um, you know, kind of what I'm doing is um, I'll sell when we sell the company. I'll sell when we all sell. That's, 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 that's kind of my intention. Um, but that said, that doesn't, you know, I don't sit in judgment of anyone else. I'm not saying that that's necessarily right or the only right way to behave. Okay, so Martin uh, is a very high-powered executive. Um, and I think we pay him 6000 Canadian a month, plus an options package, and, uh, you know, and a handsome op options package. Um, so, you know, he had an opportunity to sell his options. He actually ended up owning more stock than he did at the beginning of the exercise. But he did cash in his options. Um, and that's just simply part of his executive compensation, in my view. Uh, 
you know, uh, Lyle Davis, our chairman, cashed in some of his options. I think he sold 100,000. Our corporate secretary also sold some. She's been working with us since 2004 or five and has never made any real money. Uh, so it was absolutely delightful that she had an opportunity to make some money. Because here's the thing. You knew that the stock was going to go lower. How often in the market do you know what's going to happen next? It's, 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 it's extremely rare. You can guess, you can have ideas about what's going to happen next in the market. But the market was trading up on volume uh, in the expectation that there was going to be a takeover bid, which was nonsense. Um, so you knew that when battery day came and went, but you, the price was but the going point to go is, down. The point is, you guys knew. You guys knew it wasn't true. The buyers on the market you, did not know that because no, you guys we put out a press release. We put out a press release saying that there was no material announcement. That's the bare minimum. Coming. But that's the bare minimum, Mark. That's that's like saying nothing. And of course, that's going to be open no, to interpretation. Not. No, no, I disagree with that. I disagree with that, Matthew. That's not like saying nothing. It's like telling the truth. That's what it is. There were no material announcements forthcoming. Could you not have said, said that? Could you not have said we are not in discussions with Tesla about a takeover bid? We are not in discussions with them. Well, just a second. The the newspaper report didn't say anything about a takeover bid. You told me a few it's minutes we ago that discuss. was something you saw. These are the speculative you statements know, in the market. Look at, right? I never, okay, I never look at like CEO.ca or the poll boards or any of that stuff. But people drew my attention to some of the discussions, and I went, "Well, isn't that nonsense? You can't look at, you can't protect people from themselves if they're going to do their due diligence on, you know, in chat rooms, and that's the sum total of their due diligence." God help them. I understand the the craziness or potential for craziness of, of the chat rooms, but that's not my point. I'm coming back to the behavior, moral, ethical behavior of the chairman and president. You chose not to. It for me feels like the right thing to have done because you guys, the only ones that knew it was not real, and the price would come back down. I think you well, surely I mean, some people. Like, you, know, you know, again, Matthew, I disagree with that. We're not the only ones that knew that. We put out a press release essentially saying that. And, you know, like I just disagree with your characterization that that's the bare minimum. It's, it's, it's simply we put out a press release that told the truth. Now, some people that were trading in the stock probably didn't even bother to read our press release. Some people that did thought our press release was a ruse to cover up the fact, you know, I mean, look, <laughs> you can only do so much. And, and, and I think to put out a press release saying there is no material change forthcoming, that was the truth. It's still the truth. I don't expect a takeover bid in the next week or month. You know, uh, I'm hoping we'll, we'll see something in the next two or three years. But, you know, we're not on the verge of anything. Do, do you regret the behavior of some of the other directors to, in hindsight? In hindsight. Well, okay, uh, you know, let me say this. Anthony has brought so much value to this company, okay? Um, he looked at what was going on and he elected to sell. He sold most of his position. 
and made five or six million dollars. He's in a position where he can re-enter his position um, and put money into the company's treasury. Um, part of me regrets that I didn't sell. For example, I've got 2.7 million shares in my RRSP, a tax-free account. So with no tax consequences, I could have sold you know, five or six million dollars worth with no tax consequences. I would then be able to put that money into the treasury today. And, you know, that would be excellent. You know, there's there's $5 million that, that I could put in the treasury. Um, so, so, so part of me regrets not selling for that reason. However, you know, then there's the optics and different people have different, uh, you know, uh, takes on that. Um, you know, our company without Anthony would not be where it is today. He discovered us a little more than three years ago and liked what he saw, started helping us raise money. We were almost broke when he came across us. So he's brought us money, like access to capital. Uh, he brought us Martin Vidra, who is incredibly valuable to this company. And Martin, in turn, brought us Lyle Tritton. So in terms of, you know, on balance, uh, Anthony has been an incredibly positive uh, uh, influence on the company. We, 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 we couldn't have updated our PA. It costs a lot of money. Um, and he's still with us. He's going to help us raise more money. So, you know, yeah, are the optics bad? Sure. But I try and look at things, you know, on balance. And, uh, you know, he's, he's in a good position. Cash is king. Well, he can help us. He, he is in a good position. But I think, you know, he's done a lot for the company. But that's his job, right? I think the optics of, of how what went down in August, September is, is not so good, not so helpful. I mean, I have to note that you're twice the price you were from before all of that. So perhaps is the market short, short memoried here? Or is there other things at play? I mean, have people moved on? Is that possible? Well, I think that uh, we've simply got a larger audience than we did before. I mean, some of the audience that we attracted at that time, you know, is no longer involved. But some of the audience became aware of us did some due diligence, and have become long-term holders. Let's talk, talk to me about it. You just said something that interests me. The, the type of person that attracts, okay? The Because the, I'm thinking I'm thinking GameStop. I'm, th I'm thinking of all sorts of fun and games. Um, we've seen this side of Christmas. Right. Do, you, do you think that we're going to see mm. more of that? Do you think that mining companies like yourselves necessarily want to attract people like that? Um, do you think there's, because there's going to be people holding, you know, up around two bucks, what, over 150, these sorts of things. That's a big overhang at some point until you guys get motoring, potentially, mm. you know? I, I, you know, I think a lot of the stock that was bought at those higher levels has been sold. I mean, after September, we went through tax loss season in November and December, and we churned through a lot of volume. And in fact, I know people that every year, 
they look for stocks that have gone higher and then have come down and then you get hit by tax loss selling and there's people it's the most reliable money that they ever make they 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 sit there and accumulate i know people that did that with us they accumulated stock during november and december and it churned a lot of volume in that time period so i think a lot of that stock has turned over um i think what's left now uh is an audience that is much more uh aware of what this company is actually about um you know they've moved beyond you know the controversy shall we call it um and you know they're looking long term and and you know for me i like to get back to that it's it's um i think what's going to happen if you look at the nickel market and if you look at the battery market depending on who you listen to in terms of the prognosticators by 2040 you need between 25 and 40 new mines on screen of a similar size to Turnigan roughly 35,000 tons a year of nickel you need 25 to 40 of those and if you start thinking about ethical sourcing <laughs> you know you've got a not only is there not 25 to 40 projects out there but there's an even smaller set of uh, projects that you could call ethical And so I believe what's going to happen, you know, and you know the reason I'm really not sorry I didn't sell is I believe I'm going to ultimately sell for a much higher price. I could be wrong, I'm not making predictions. That's my point. Then like like I this this whole conversation is about ethics because it's about ethical mining, right? Sure. This, but in yep. terms of supply chain etc. So it is I I I'm a big believer in that and I think the need for it. Um I think the optics around ethics in terms of what happened in October or September i think as far as your company's concerned it seems that people aren't forgiving me the nickel price is helping a lot at the moment um sure. and you've been to say you said right at the start so there's been honest and refreshing approach to how you presented the pea i like that there's a lot to like and we should move on because we've got to talk about brazil <laughs> before you go okay oh yes Okay. There's a new project in the house and it's uh, not in Canada. It's down in Brazil. So tell me a bit about it. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um I became aware of a company called Nerve Intelligence, um hmm. which is uh, based in to Vancouver. Them. Yeah. We know them. You know, and 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 it just seemed very interesting um because they've got you know, they don't just is you know, it's not artificial intelligence where you just throw a database into it and let it chug away. It's heavily supervised by qualified geologists. And you know, a friend of mine named Mike Beck who's also involved with this company is a backer of Minerva and he said, you know, can can you think of anything useful, you know, for Minerva to do for Giga? And I went, well, actually, I have always been curious. And again, I'm not a geologist, but I do read a lot and I I'm surrounded by geologists. So it's a bit dangerous actually. Um but I've always been curious about the Sao Francisco craton in Brazil which a lot of people think is an extension of the copper belt in Africa in the Congo and I said gosh I mean you know and it's been intensely studied I'm not the only one who's noticed this this is this has been intensely studied it's been explored 
There's been all sorts of academic papers written on it. It's too much information. And, you know, I've been trying to get geologists to take a look at it, but it was just too big of a job for, you know, you would need a team of geologists to look at it. And I couldn't afford a team of geologists. So, so that had been an idea I had that was sort of sitting on the sidelines. We got Minerva involved and they were able to crank through all of this regional information and come up with areas that were prospective for the type of, uh, you know, sedimentary copper deposits that we were looking for. And some of the areas were already well-staked, but some of the areas were not. And so we focused on an area that was not well-staked, uh, sent a geologist out there, and they've got people drilling water wells all over the place, and with these blue chips lying beside the drill holes. And so we got chip samples, and we started to do some mapping and so forth. Uh, the bottom line is, so, so this is a... This is a a regional grassroots exploration play. We're not devoting a ton of our budget to it. It's a bit of a side deal. Turnigan remains our focus and the focus of our budget. But I just really like this sort of thing personally. I like that kind of exploration. Um, and you never know. You could end up, I mean, if you could find these, these, these red bed copper deposits, can be very high grade and they can be very large. And they're an unusual deposit type. There's not a lot of expertise in the world on them. As I say, most of them are in the Congo, but my God, I mean, so, so we've now accumulated a land position, a very large land position. Uh, we're, we're just planning to do further grassroots exploration to try and narrow the search, but we already know some areas of interest within that land position. And uh, we'll gradually advance this. And, and perhaps we'll advance it to the point where, you know, someone else will come in and spend the drilling money. But you've, you've, gone, you've, you've, you've gone and got exploration permits in anticipation yeah. of working, you know, trying, trying to see what the, if there is something there. So you're spending a bit of money yeah. on it. And you have, and, you know, there's consultants involved. Yeah. You're not, not distracting yeah. from, from the work at hand, for sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, what, how, how much money are we talking about? Because how much money have you got in the kitty at the moment? So I think it was about four uh, million. Roughly three billion dollars. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and I'm planning to spend sort of 15 to 20 a month over the next little while uh, in Brazil. Right. Okay. So Nothing crazy. It's not insignificant, but it's, you know, with, with that kind of money, you can get a lot of grassroots work done. Right. Okay. What, what should we expect to see from that this year in terms of that, that spend? What's that get you? Just a... You know, I'm not sure yet. Um, you know, uh, basically, we've been doing stream sediment sampling. Well, for one thing, we were locked out of there for a year. Our, we tried to send a geologist in. You know, there was a first visit, which was about a year and a half ago. And he found uh, outcrop. He found, you know, all these villagers drilling water wells with these blue rocks, rock chips beside the water wells. And he'd grab samples and take them. They run to copper and silver um, and other elements. So, and then when he tried to go back in, there was 100-year floods in that area. Couldn't get in. And then the COVID hit Brazil so hard. So, it, you, know, we, you know, we had a year. Um, we're we're, we're going to be doing more mapping and sampling. We might help some of the villagers drill some water wells in certain areas, which is, you know, inexpensive drilling. We're looking for shallow. 
uh, uh, deposit. So I don't really know what to expect, you know, over the next little while. It's going to be slow and sporadic. Um, you know, there's a possibility that something can come up of great geological interest to perhaps a major um, or not, you know. Okay. It's 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 an it's, it's an, it's an auction work. early stage expression with with, with the auction there. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So one other thing I did um, look at here was you applied, we announced a warrant extension at the end of December. Well, oh, yeah. just before Christmas, warrants weren't extended. Right. The exchange said no. Any any reason? Is that fairly normal? Well, okay. The reason I did is that we had some seventy cent warrants that were expiring, and not everybody, you know, during that run. Uh, I was calling everybody that owned warrants that were in the money that were anywhere near expiry and saying, you know, there seems to be a pretty good spread here. You might want to look at capturing the spread. You can exercise and hold for the long term or you can exercise and sell and capture the spread. Either way, it puts money in our treasury. Uh, some of the people that owned warrants at 70 cents didn't sell. Um, and then one of them, who's a large shareholder of ours, came to me and said, you know, could we get these warrants extended? I said, sure. Uh, so I went and attempted to do that. Um, the reason that the exchange didn't allow it is you can't extend warrants uh, if any of that class of warrants have been exercised in the last 12 months. And some of them have been. So I applied for the extension. They came back and said, well, you, you can't do it because some of them have been exercised, and that basically killed it. So I was just simply trying to accommodate some uh, long-term shareholders of ours, and uh, at the end of the day, I couldn't. Okay, okay, un understood. Um, no AGM this year. COVID put paid to that, and I expect a lot of lot of things. Um, mm -hmm. You're just going to be doing things online going forward. Seems a lot easier. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's a lot easier. Yeah. We'll hopefully have the uh, our our last AGM. The uh, the um, it was a bit rough in terms of the sound quality, so we're going to try and do better this year with the sound quality for people dialing in for the AGM. Right. Okay. Look, Mark, thank you very much for today. And, and by the way, my, my condolences um, about Eric Birch, who passed away just before Christmas. Yes. Yeah. Uh, good guy, yeah. really good guy, and um, yeah. you know our thoughts are with. Very experienced guy with, a, yeah. with, a, with quite a network and just, uh, you know, he was a joy to work with. But yeah. Very hard working. For, and for yeah. too young as well. Yeah, he's 51. Yeah. Just a massive heart attack. Yeah. So boom. Yeah. Bit of a reminder. Exactly. What's Enjoy important yourself. in life. Enjoy yourself. Indeed, indeed. Spend, okay. Spend time with people that you like. Yes. Yes. Because there's not that much time. Thank you. <laughs> nice way to end the day. Um, I will go and do that with a probably with a yeah. bottle of red wine. I suspect. Um, Very good, Mark. Stay in touch. Let's know how you get on. Obviously, it's it's an interesting time. Frothy market in nickel. Let's see where it goes this year. Um, I'll be delighted to take a phone call from you uh, anytime. Very good. Well, thank you, Matthew. Appreciate it. Cheers. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast? or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.